Hello, Aaron. I would say that, um, hi, and how are you doing today? But we've already been on Zooms all morning long, so. <laughs> it's true. We're all caught up with each other. But I will tell you guys this, that BB is holding a baby, a little baby Florence. And we've just been like googling and oogling over her for like 10 solid minutes. And the baby doesn't make any noise. And I think it's amazing because my children have been noisy since the moment they arrived. So I cannot relate to a baby that's this quiet. <laughs> now she's going to cry through this entire like pre-record this this entire recording now you just sorry <laughs> sorry she's like a lot doll I was like that's not a real baby it <laughs> can't that's, be real that's literally like the reaction that we get from everyone like oh my god her cheeks she looks like a doll <laughs> she does it's precious it's just it really precious. is she's just precious and she's smiling right now which means she's probably pooping yeah <laughs> i mean i that's smile funny. when i poop too i'm just saying like, oh I love thank god relief <laughs> a universal feeling we all feel <laughs> that's it that's it pooping is a big deal it is. okay let's not go down that road you know me. I, I can talk about poop all day you good Let's um, talk about our podcast this week, which is surrogacy. So today on the podcast, we have the most amazing woman. Her name is Jesse Jeff Kolsky. She is the owner and founder of Surrogacy Simplified. And we are so happy we had a chance to sit down and talk with her. She has a really incredible story from start to finish about her own infertility journey. She ended up being diagnosed with Asherman syndrome. Um and fast forward multiple years of testing and trying to, you know, get her body into a place where she could potentially carry again, um, they decided to go down the surrogacy route. So she tells us her whole story about her experience with two different, actually three different potential um, gestational carriers uh, that brought her her two beautiful daughters and how that inspired her to start Surrogacy Simplified it's a really complicated process, like all around surrogacy is. And she kind of explains the nitty gritty to us. And she founded this company um, to kind of do all of the things that she wished her agency or that somebody could tell her and kind of hold her hand through because there is a lot of decision-making and a lot of legal and a lot of just steps involved when it comes to being um, an intended parent on the gestational carrier journey. So yeah, it was a really great episode. She's amazing. And in honor of this really amazing episode, we actually have a free workshop with her next week on Tuesday. Um, it is January 23rd. Yes, it is. 2024. 2024. <laughs> yes. Um, it is surrogacy 101 and essentially every question that you have um, about surrogacy, whether it's traditional or via gestational carrier, she is prepared to answer. So it's a free workshop. I will link it in the show notes, um, how you can go learn more about it. And yeah, we hope we'll see you there. All right, everybody. Enjoy. <laughs> Here 
today. I'm so glad that we connected via the world of, I think it was entrepreneurs, right? Yes. Yes. Started entrepreneurs and then with Carolyn and just, yeah, so many connections. So many connections, such a small world. I love that. Um, for listeners out there, we have Jesse Jess Kolsky on today from Surrogacy Simplified. She is the founder and owner. And yeah, we're just so excited to have her here today to talk, walk us through her journey through IVF and surrogacy and the birth of this amazing business. So yeah, welcome, Jesse. Thank you. Excited to be here with you both. Yeah. Um, we would love for you to like tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. And then obviously we'd love for you to share as much as or as little as you're comfortable with about your own infertility journey and how you got here today. I know that's probably going to be a long-winded statement. So take as much time as you want to do that. Yes. Yes. And I'm pretty much an open book. So there's no questions that are off the table um, as we get through it. But I Everything began back in 2016. I um, became pregnant easily. And then I had uh, very unexpectedly a 22-week loss mm-hmm. on our baby moon, actually. So we were away from our family, away from our friends. It was Christmas. Oh, my gosh. And just couldn't have a, like, predicted that we, like I said, easy, conceived easy, felt fine, just really felt like it was coming out of nowhere. That's um, terrible. Everything about that part of it, being on your baby moon, being away, being at Christmas, there's a trifecta of, oh my gosh, what is going on? Absolutely. Yeah. So then once we were cleared to fly again, we came back home and we started processing everything. And I, a couple of weeks later began hemorrhaging and I didn't realize that it, I, I was joking with my parents. I'm like, I think I'm peeing myself. And I went to the bath because that's what it felt like. And I went to the bathroom and I was actually hemorrhaging. And it turned out I had retained placenta from a preterm delivery. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was the catalyst for everything that was to follow. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So what can we ask? So I'm assuming then that you didn't end up with a DNC while you were away. Correct. I delivered. Okay. And then ended up having to do the DNC procedure afterwards again, because of the retained placenta and the bleeding and the, got it. Correct. Wow. Yeah. So that was really what, and I didn't realize at the time what that was going to do to my body. And um, I remember my husband and I went to a high-risk doctor just to plan um, for when we would be able to conceive again, how we would, you know, try to get me into a safer gestation because I know I had delivered at 22 weeks and they had said, you know, keep an eye on your period. You may develop Asherman syndrome, but it's incredibly rare. So I thought the risk of what they said at the Mm -hmm. time was incompetent cervix probably Mm -hmm. was was not, was very rare. Then when they told me Asherman syndrome, like, okay, well, that's rare again. I already had two rare things happen. I can't have a third rare thing happen to me. Long story short, testing procedures, years, like of going back and forth. I did have, in fact, Asherman syndrome. So So tell the listeners what Asherman syndrome is so that everyone is clear. Yes. And it's not that common. Nope. Very rare. Yes. it It is scarring of the uterus. 
and you are able to remove it. And many people do go on to have a healthy pregnancy after the scarring is removed once the uterine cavity is clear. However, for me, it left my lining very thin. So some people that happens, but they're able to work with their reproductive endocrinologist and kind of bulk that lining up and get pregnant. I was not able to, um, for, for those that are in the thick of it, I was not able to get a lining thicker than five millimeters, which is pretty thin. Um, so. so you you did attempt the reproductive endocrinology pathway I did. Is that when you were diagnosed with Asherman? Is that how that was discovered? So we went through, I, when I discovered I had Asherman syndrome was because my period started getting light. And that was what they had told me to keep an eye out for. Right. And then I had to go to the gynecologist who said, like a specialist who said to go back to the RE to have them do the test where they put the, you know, the saline through and they mm. try to, and they couldn't get through. And I, um, the name is escaping me of the salpingogram. Yes. The HSG. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it was so painful. They couldn't do it. They had to cancel the procedure. Then they knew I had it. And I went back to this, the, the gynecologist to actually do the procedure, but it's wow. not just any gynecologist. It's one that specializes in Asherman syndrome. Got it. So can I ask back with your loss, they said the reason was an incompetent cervix. That's what they kind of chalked it all up. So they they're, they said they don't know if it's you went into preterm labor and then your cervix opened or if you have this incompetent cervix and then you went into labor. It's like a what came first, chicken or the egg. So they they think it could be both. Some women end up getting pregnant again and doing what's called a cerclage where they mm -hmm. stitch in and you're like on this like modified, like, you know, like a little bit of restricted activity. So it doesn't necessarily prevent everybody from going on to have a healthy pregnancy the next time around. But many people do have losses from it. Gotcha. Did you do any kind of genetic testing? I'm just curious. Yes, everything was fine. That's so hard. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Yeah, it was just like I said, so unexpected. And like it, it felt like series. Of, and I know so many people that are in like the infertility world say this. It feels like every time there's like a rare statistic, it's like it felt like it was happening to me. Yeah. I feel that so much. Bryant is one of those people. <laughs> yes. Every time the road can take a bizarre left-hand turn, it she takes one. And we're like, yeah, they're like yeah, there's this a 5% chance. Yeah. yeah. How do you consistently fall on the wrong side of statistics? I feel like somebody should study me. Like, <laughs> it doesn't right. make sense like, to continuously do that. But here we are. Well, I'm so, so sorry. Crazy. And I feel like- And for you, I know that's frustrating. It is frustrating. It is. And I wonder, did, knowing that there wasn't anything wrong genetically or that they could find like a clear cause, was that harder or better for you? Because I feel like the unknown, like I almost would have felt better if, in any of my losses if there was like a very clear reason why, you know? Right. How did you feel? Yes. And I think for me, it was just like, well, a couple things. I didn't know if it was a boy or girl till he was born because I just like was so hopeful that he like that we were going to get get through it. And then in the hospital, ultimately, they weren't able to save him. But uh, I mean, like save the, the pregnancy like from progressing. Right. And then two, it was just it was more like everything I had expected to happen, like grieving all of the what like what I had imagined was going to be the next phase of my life not happening and like that realization. Um, but what for me and my fertility 
journey, I think the most frustrating process was deciding to do surrogacy because I was in this sort of gray area where like, oh yeah, like you, you can, you might be able to get pregnant with your thin lining. You probably will go, go on bed rest. You might make it to a safe gestation. No one was like, you were a black and white candidate for surrogacy. Like, and I just really wanted somebody to hold my hand and be like, this makes more sense for you. This gives you the best odds of having a, a baby the safest and at the best um, gestation, at the safest gestation. We talk about that all the time, that there's this sort of weird place where the patient is really hoping that someone with some authority will come in and be very candid and very honest and say, listen, you need to stop, or this is a better path, or this is very unlikely to help you, or this might take five years and you might have, but it seems like there's this kind of breadcrumb trail where it's like, well, maybe like you said, well, you could, well, we could try this, well, we could do that. And instead you end up on this weird prolonged treadmill of possibility that becomes its own kind of torment, its own kind of exhaustion. And if somebody would just say, here's the stats, right? what would you like to do? I think we should do X. Then it would be so much easier to go, let's go with that plan. Like I'm going to save my money. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to save my money. I'm going to strategize this. That's going to take a few years. But if you spend three years trying all the things only to then figure out you have to do surrogacy. It's just an extra level of difficulty. So we totally get that. We talk about that in like all these different ways in the fertility space. Yeah. You just wish, right. You couldn't have said it any better. Like that someone could have just said it. It was my husband and I originally actually my, my stepmother-in-law who suggested surrogacy and you can like make all of the jokes about the unwanted opinions. I wasn't ready for it yet, but it was in the back of my head now. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband and I, we were the ones that sat down and, and we were, took a look at everything. Okay, we if if your lining gets in, improved a little bit, we still have every other reason that you lost Luke. That's his name. Um, so we just put it together ourselves. Like, okay, we are going to pursue surrogacy. Like, it wasn't like there was anyone really giving us like that black and white answer we so desperately wanted. Right. I have a family member that had cardiomyopathy at a really young age. And so she was told when she was very young, it's highly unlikely that you'll ever be able to carry a pregnancy. So just know that. Right. Plan for that. So she knew when, since she was in her early 20s that she, if she wanted to have a biological child, she was going to have to plan for surrogacy. So it gave her such an advantage in that way that it wasn't terrifying and it wasn't, and, you know, she was just able to make decisions accordingly. And although, you know, that's atypical for sure. I think anyone who's in those circumstances wants someone to say, this is what we think you should do. And thank you, mother-in-law. Right. Like probably the untimely (laughs) delivery, but, (laughs) but it's nice too to have a mother-in-law that didn't say, Oh, just keep trying. Oh, just keep going. Oh, just keep going. Because half the time that's the pressure is that, you know, your extended family and everybody else has an opinion of what you should do and you feel the weight of that. And so, yeah. Brian, I'm sure you feel this too, but the, the age and like lots of people around you being pregnant. I know that for me in my journey was probably the hardest thing. And in particular, it was like a group of my best friends. Like I remember 
this was years ago. I'm, I'm, this was probably five, this was like five years ago or so at my 30th birthday, I was the only one able to have a drink. Everybody else was pregnant. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's yeah. It was I, just like, it's, it's like an extra stab in the heart, you know? Yeah. I and have had like a similar situation where pretty much all of my friends at this point have kids except for one. And she's like working towards that now. And it's been hard to grapple with like what life is like hanging out now. Like, I don't know how to put this more kindly, but all we talk about is their kids. And it's so hard to participate because I don't have anything to relate it to. And that yeah. makes it really hard. And I feel like, and it's not like they do, do it on purpose. I'm never going to not tell them for my, like, I don't want anybody to temper their joy for, to be around me. Like, that's not what people should do, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah. And I'm sure you had no we friends for going through infertility, or if you did only a few, and I doubt any of them had gone through surrogacy, right? None. Yeah, none. So how did you and your husband then decide, like, what was the, like, what was the chain of events that then led you to deciding to go with surrogacy? And then how did you take those steps after that? Because I know it's such a complicated process. It is. It's really overwhelming. So we officially made the decision after several failed IUIs, and then we were going to go to IVF. So we were like, okay, once we create this, these embryos, what are we doing with them? Because there's special testing you should do ahead of your um, like special blood work. If you think you might consider surrogacy, like it's like an FDA blood panel. Mm-hmm. I did that. So it's a last yeah. round. Oh, good. Because we thought, well, we, all of my, all six of my embryos ended up being genetically abnormal, which is like a whole other can of worms that is just insane and cannot figure out what happened there. But we had done, that was our whole intention was our last round was for a gestational carrier. So yeah, extra stuff. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. Um, once we made that decision after the failed IUIs, we went ahead and called an agency that we had um, been recommended to by my mother-in-law because she had a bunch of friends um, in the gay community that had used them to complete their family. So there was a a safety in numbers. And from there, we we talked to the agency. They were lovely and we moved forward. And um, we went through the process. Very long story short, our first surrogate miscarried and we had to break the match. So we spent all of the the resources on the attorneys, the psychologists, like the the medical clearance, the transfer, health insurance review, everything. And then we had to start from scratch again. Oh my gosh. How far along was she when she miscarried? About six weeks. And it was it was from a rare complication from IVF meds. It was something that nobody could have predicted. Oh my gosh. Talk wow. about statistics again. Yeah. Wow. It was just, yeah, it was really unbelievable. How did you get the courage to try again after that? Because at that point, again, you're starting to feel like maybe we're not meant to have kids. I know. Like every time we try this, something bad happens. And, and is this God telling me something? I know. It was, it was really tough. Um, we had a grief counselor that helped us. And we just knew so badly that we wanted to be parents. We just didn't feel like we had it in us to give up. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't feel like our fight was over yet. And so 
I started joining Facebook groups and connecting with other um, surrogates and intended parents. And my uh, my eventual gestational carrier um, messaged me and was like, you seem so nice. You're wishing everybody good luck. You haven't posted anything about yourself. Are you looking? I'm looking to carry for somebody. And that was how I met my gestational carrier. And I had her then apply to my agency. Oh, that's amazing. So it was almost like an independent match. It was, it really was. That's really, really cool. So you then, yeah. Okay. So then she applied to your agency and then the agency took over from there. They like, they vetted her like, again, it's like, I almost vetted her first and then they, they sort of confirmed like, yeah, this is a great match. Um, she looks great. Medic- like, like they looked over her chart quickly before we passed it on to the fertility clinic and they, everybody thought that it would be, it would be great. And it ended up being a wonderful match. We love, we still talk with her, but she did develop preeclampsia, preeclampsia and had my daughter seven weeks early. Oh my goodness. Bruno, you know, like, of course anything happens. I don't mean, I just mean like, again, like the statistics and just. Oh my gosh. So is she okay? Like, how did that go? So we got the call that she was going to the hospital and she had three kids at the time. So um, we, my husband and I rushed down to help her in the hospital so her husband could focus on taking care of the kids. And we ended up being in Kentucky. We live in Maryland when the, where the baby was born start to finish for about a month. Wow. Wow. Yeah, because she was, in, she was on hospital bed rest for about two weeks and our daughter was born at 33 weeks. And then when she had a two week NICU stay. Oh, wow. I feel like that's, so she developed preeclampsia, was in the hospital for two weeks, then gave birth and then, okay. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So that would put us at being away from, like we did one of those, a hotel extended stays for about a month. How did you handle that? You guys like just professionally? Cause I think that's so crazy. I mean, obviously you're expecting it to happen at a certain point in time, like at the end of, you know, your last trimester, but how did you arrange all of that? That's something that I like wonder, how do you pick up and go? I mean, especially from Maryland to Kentucky. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a great question. So what happened was, and again, like think you plan for one way, one path, and then everything goes unexpected. I, I'm a, I was prior to being into this role as a surrogacy, a surrogacy consultant, I was a speech pathologist. And I thought after I lost my son, I would go on um, like bed rest and have a baby. Like I didn't realize I was going to have all of these complications. So I ended up resigning from my job and taking a teletherapy job so I could work remotely and rest and still make money and have a healthy pregnancy. That wasn't what was in store for me, but at least I was working remotely at this time. So I would, when I, when we first got to Kentucky the first week or so, I still worked. And then it got to just be, it got really stressful because we just, it was like, any minute it was going to happen. And I was just at the hospital all day at that point. So then at that point, I had to start my maternity leave a little bit early. And my husband also from the pandemic, his work went remote and they've been remote since. So he, for in the NICU, um, a lot of the times we couldn't take my daughter out of the incubator because they just, she just had to focus on growing. He was just working in the NICU next to me. So we were just like with her so she could feel our presence and he was just working. Wow. That's a lot. Okay. So that first journey was great. How did, when did you guys decide to go for a second? Like how did that work then? 
we decided around our daughter's first birthday because we had known how long it had taken us to have our first daughter, which was about four and a half years, including the loss, including diagnoses, but we just didn't know how long everything would take the second time. So we started around my daughter's first birthday, but it was 2021 and it was the height of COVID and they weren't, no surrogacy agencies were quoting match times. So that was what gave me the confidence to try an independent journey. Um, just because if they, I felt like if they couldn't give me a wait time, why not just throw my hat into the ringer and see what I can do? Sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. So the second one was an independent match. How did you meet her? I went onto the Facebook groups that I was in before and I posted sort of a, like a profile. You could call it. I had pictures of my family, the reasons surrounding why I needed to go to, to go through a, um, a surrogate to have a, a child safely. And then also a couple of just like the logistics of what the fertility clinic would require. So we wouldn't fall in love with somebody that ultimately wouldn't, you know, fit the criteria that the fertility clinic screens for. Right. Okay. That's awesome. So how quick did that match happen? Weeks. It was unbelievably lucky. Wow. I'm And then I managed the process myself. That also sounds crazy, but I know that I know so many people who waited like over a year to match even independently. Yeah. So that's amazing that you match that fast. It, it's honestly like a needle in a haystack because so many amazing women are posting their stories and their stories are just like so gut-wrenching of why they need a surrogate. And it's almost like the luck of when someone goes onto Facebook and happens to be reading right. at that time. Totally. Can you tell us what are some of the requirements of the fertility clinic? What are they looking at and for that would eliminate people from the process? They are looking um, for somebody. Um, they look at how many pregnancies you've had and what, um, how many weeks gestation they were delivered at. They look at how many C-sections. Sometimes they say no more than two, sometimes three. It depends a little bit. Um, somebody who's financially stable. And the reason for that is they want they want to make sure that the surrogate's never exploited and doing it for like more, even though they're right. going to get compensated, but for more altruistic reasons. Right. And then they also look at like no criminal history. They look at a background check um, and this agencies, or if you're independent, you would probably run, run a background check instead of the fertility clinic, but they would still ask. And then um, just like how your pregnancy was, was it complicated more about like, they look at all of the records of your, like your pregnancy history. Is your state one of the states that require that um, all gestational carriers that you have to have a successful pregnancy before you can even qualify to carry? Like how yes, does that like, most it, do. It's like that here too. So I was just curious. Yes. And interestingly, you follow the laws where the baby's going to be born. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. So, so that for me, I live in, I live in Maryland, but my first journey was Kentucky. So we had Kentucky lawyers and my second journey um, was in Virginia. So we had our attorneys were both based out of Virginia. Wow. Did you ever the only exception to that? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I guess the preeclampsia disqualified your first carrier from yes. yep. again. Interesting. Okay. That makes total sense though. Yeah. Uh, and, but I was going to say, interestingly, California is the only exception to that. They are so surrogacy friendly that sometimes some attorneys will say, if you've done your transfer there to follow, to try to argue to follow California state law, because it's just so clean. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So 
So, okay. So you had two beautiful girls, right? Yes. And how did the second pregnancy go? It went great. Um, both times we had a great relationship. They were both had very different personalities, but in the matching phase, I did a really good job of advocating for the type of relationship I wanted and how often I wanted to be in communication. So that way I wouldn't have to ever worry. Am I annoying them that I'm checking in? Like, is this okay? I just set all those expectations up front. You know, I said, listen, I have had a loss. Like I, it, I would feel comfortable. Like, even if it's like, once a day, like, Hey, how are you? And hopefully we'll have a friendship. It's not just out of the talking about the baby, but that's what would make me feel really good. And then the people that I matched with were like understood where my headspace was and were totally okay with it. So you had a daily check-in. Yeah, but like we did, but it ended up being like texting a friend mm -hmm. it, and like, uh, Hey, how are you? Like, Oh, I went to this, like, just like a more like a conversation, not just like the pregnancy. How did you handle all of the pregnancy related, um, you know, the doctor's appointments and the ultrasounds and all of that? Did you get on the phone? Were you sort of present for that? Or did you just have to wait for the report after the fact? It was a combination. Um, so we, we went in for the 12 and 20 week and 32 week for my second journey. The other times we tried to FaceTime, but the, the in this particular scenario, she, the, the office had horrible reception. So there were a few appointments where we missed and I was actually very upset about that because I wanted to be included and I had to then wait for somebody to call me afterwards. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds very complicated. I guess, especially if like you're not using an agency to help mediate all that, am I right? Or am I misunderstanding kind of how the agency plays a role in all of this? They, so the agency would, would be responsible for helping coordinate all the appointments. Gotcha, gotcha. But And if, like outside monitoring. And obviously if you're an independent journey, you're just doing all that on your own, huh? Exactly, which is what I did. That's wild. That might be simpler though. It seems almost like a third party just could be further complication. I Yeah. And I think it depends how much help you want. Like if you want somebody to manage all that for you, or if you feel like you want to ha have some control in what's, what feels like an uncontrollable situation that you're able to kind of help work towards some of it. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to think about the difference in personalities, like, and the same thing with adoption, you know, some people really want that intimacy they want. And then some people for their mental health or whatever, they feel like they need to be more detached from it. Like it's yes. too hard for me to have to witness this all the time. And so I just want, you know, kind of keep me out of the loop. And when the baby's mine, it'll be mine. I think it's so interesting how people approach that differently because I you know I think we make these assumptions about what's the right way to do it but right. it really just depends on the couple I'm sure exactly and 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 what I do now with my clients is I advocate I tell them how to advocate for themselves while they're matching with a family so that way the expectations are set from the beginning and it ends up creating this really beautiful relationship because everybody's on the same page so that's the perfect segue so tell us about surrogacy simplified and why you know what it is how it's different why you decided to go in that direction like it's really interesting thank you so I thought about both of my journeys and what would have been everything I would have wanted so I felt that the agency and most agencies do such an amazing job of matching you and like a lot of the big picture items like you said like scheduling the GC's 
um, fertility appointments and some I'm like helping connect you with your escrow and your health insurance, but which is, which is fantastic. But what I wanted was also somebody I could just text some questions to, or have a weekly zoom where we could kind of sort through here's everything we've done. Here's the next step, almost like a project management help because it sort of is like this big project, right? And um, helping with the relationship management, like asking questions. So like something that I'll do is like help with like remembering things about the GC and her family to help remind the IPs to really keep that relationship so nice and running smoothly and mediate when anything goes awry. And just like all IP intended parent. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. Yes. IPs is intended parents. And the G and G if I ever say GC, that's gestational carrier carrier and and intended parents. Okay. Got it. Yes. And um, really just all of the little things. If somebody came to me with, uh, with um, like a member of their community that could carry, I, I would case manage it like exactly in, in the exact same way that a agency would, but it's all of those little details that I also add on that I think are just so incredibly important, important to helping people feel more supported when they're going through all of this. Cause it's just unbelievably complicated. How do you handle lifestyle factors and requests? Because I think again, that's something that can be really specific and unique. If you are a vegan family, yes. Or, you know, if you have a cultural or a religious preference that your GC doesn't necessarily have, but it feels very important to the IPs, how do you handle that? I feel like that sounds like more what you would be particularly great at as, you know, the not agent liaison person is yes to navigate that kind of challenge. Because I think that could be really stressful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both sides. Oh, I completely agree. And I think what I would, what I would, if it, in, in that exact scenario, I would advise the intended parents and say, listen, you can make any request you want, because this is going to be your baby at the end of the day. And you just have to keep in mind, I don't want to say the pickier, but the more criteria you have, you're going to take longer to match. And if, and it, so you have to just kind of evaluate what's more important, like this, like, having a GC that will be vegan for 10 months, or do you just want the baby yesterday? I mean, I mean, everybody wants the baby yesterday, but like, what are you willing to, where are you willing to bend and make the sacrifices? And then the other thing I would say, and I was kind of alluding to this before is being really upfront with everything. Like I was like, Hey, I had a loss. I'd feel really good if we could talk a lot, like for that person. Hey, I'm, I'm a vegan or I keep kosher. Like how do you feel about maintaining this type of a lifestyle? And then when it goes into the legal part of the surrogacy journey, they would write that into the contract. And I would also advise the intended parents, it might cost them more money because they might be paying for, let's say organic. I know we didn't give the organic example, but if you wanted organic food or to help her cook, perhaps if she's cooking vegan for herself, but the rest of her family is not vegan. And, you know, just to be aware of um, what that would look like and how that would play out. Do those kinds of requests really show up? I mean, are those norms in the surrogacy world? No, I haven't come across it, but I certainly see it. And I do think it happens. I've had a few gestational carriers come to my acupuncture clinic because the parents had requested that they do acupuncture. I I requested my, both of my GCs do acupuncture. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. So it's happened to me a few times and that, you know, that was an interesting conversation to have. Like this woman is just trying to honor the requests of these other people. And so they were paying for it. Yep. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is really, really interesting. Yeah. I remember too, I had a friend that, um, actually was a carrier, was a gestational carrier after her second child. She just really wanted to help somebody. And so she did it. And she said in the matching process, like before she was even matched with her intended parents, like she could check like what political party, like she would rather match with, like what, if do you believe in vaccinations? Like the all, like it was that specific. And I was so mindful how specific it was but I guess that makes total sense because you're setting expectations for the kind of person that you're going to have a very intimate relationship with for a whole year long but yeah so absolutely and and I will say the COVID vaccine that was a such a hot button topic I mean everywhere but um especially in the surrogacy world and what made it really interesting was that some of the fertility clinics required it so then you were it, and it, you know, I can see both sides of the coin now, but at the time people were, we were like all of these potential surrogates weren't applying to agencies because they didn't want to get vaccinated. Well, I, was it you, Erin, or maybe it was Suzanne. I can't remember who it was, but they were saying that a paper recently came out that the um, late term pregnancy loss has gone up like 400% since COVID, since 2020. And they don't have like a clear reason why, but the only like thing that they can assume is that COVID, which wow. is absolutely. And Aaron and I were just talking right before you hopped on. We just, we know somebody that just had a late term stillbirth, like 30 some odd weeks. And we were like, there one, like we have seen so many recently and it's just crazy. Well, I think she did, the, the baby was alive when she delivered, but then died very quickly after. Yeah, 48 hours. No reason. So not still. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Just why that's another story. <laughs> that's a different podcast, but it is yeah. really kind of terrifying, I think, to think about the kind of investment any couple is making in pregnancy, knowing these rates are changing, but then also again, like spending all that time in a surrogacy to then have this new fear. <laughs> like, oh, you know, I don't know. I feel like that information really needs to come to light you know like people really need to start talking about it right Um, science people medical people they need to start acknowledging that these things are happening because I think people should know yeah absolutely it's to have the full picture and the understanding that things can go wrong just like they would in a regular pregnancy as they could in the surrogacy journey for sure and I imagine that that level of trust is hard to hand over to because you have so little trust in yourself. And then what you want to do is be like, okay, the problem solved. I'm just going to get somebody else to carry this baby. But then that's not always what happens. You know, like you said, falling on the wrong side of statistics over and over again. Right. Yeah. That's terrifying. So how many times, or is it a thing that if you have a successful surrogacy that you would use the same person again for an additional child? Is that something you can do? Is that against the rules? Does it depend? Absolutely. And I think that's great when it happens because they already have a great relationship. People call it like a sibling journey. Mm -hmm. The only reason I would say if they, if the surrogate wouldn't qualify is perhaps it was her fifth pregnancy so then having the, the sibling for the, the intended parents would be like baby six or 
seven, but every fertility clinic's a little bit different on the amount of deliveries that they will allow. So I, I'm cautious to give like an exact number, but if, if that's, if that can happen and financially the intended parents can afford to do it again, I think that's amazing. I, so I think that was my next question is how do most gestational, like IPs, intended parents, how do they finance this? I mean, is it through loans or just saving up and paying cash? Like, what is, like, what do you see? Because I think that was the scariest part on my end was. Yeah. And I actually have been doing a lot of research on this too, because it really is one of the most commonly asked questions surrounding surrogacy. A lot of people pay cash surprisingly, like, or they, or they liquidate stocks or they take out home equity loans. Um, there's a lot of grants that are available. Um, I recently did a blog post about this, but you'll, there's um, one grant out there that is specific to surrogacy. And then there's a lot of grants out there that will give a portion of it. So they might give like $20,000, which is incredibly generous, but in a surrogacy journey, it can be like upwards of $150,000. I was going to ask what the national average was. And I guess it probably depends on a lot of factors, right? Like not just if she has been like a successful surrogate before, but I would imagine it has to do with the state you're in, like what the like average is for your area, I would imagine. Yeah, like the, yeah, like they uh, typically they'll set their compensation and it really has such a wide range. I've seen 35,000 all the way upwards of 60,000. And then it's your agency fees on top of that if you're going through an agency, right? Correct. Wow. So and then you, there's also, um, you pay for both attorneys. There's, there's a lot of different things that you take on. You pay for the um, psychologists okay. if they don't have health insurance that's surrogacy friendly. Sometimes there's an exclusion. You would then purchase health insurance for them as well. Well, crazy. And I guess that's exactly where surrogacy simplified comes in, right? That's where you help create that roadmap. Yeah, absolutely. I was just getting ready to say that. So I, I, I sort of figure, I look at myself with having two tracks. Some uh, independent families will come to me and then they can save money by avoiding an agency fee and we can try to match them either like on so, using social media or they could match on like there's platforms now like Nodal and Expecting AI where they're, they're not free, but they're much, they're much more or less, they're much more inexpensive compared to the agencies. Or I have families that are working with an agency, but even with the agency, there's still a lot of those little details, like I was saying, that is nice for somebody to hold your hand and support you with. So they might just be people that would just really like all of the support because it's so incredibly overwhelming. I actually just posted today an article by um, Whitney Port from Laguna Beach in the Hills, if you guys watched that back in the day, and she um, is on a surrogacy. What did you say? saw that article and she had like several miscarries with miscarriages with her surrogate her, uh, yes and she said in the article she says I have a wonderful agency and then the article goes on to read I'm managing all of the emails and scheduling and it's so tedious and it's weighing me down and I was like that's the perfect example of how I can complement a agency like I would take all of that off of her plate for example and she could just focus on her son and just hopefully having a baby you know and getting hopefully the surrogate getting pregnant. That's amazing. So you're essentially like a white glove person, like business, yes. right? You are a, yes. That's really, really, really cool. So like, what does the average like relationship look like between you and an intended parent and a gestational carrier? What does that look like? 
I would say in terms of length, like a, like a duration. Yeah. I would say about 18 months is, is an average. I, my first journey was for, like I said, four and a half years, but that was with really finding out diagnosis, diagnoses and things like that. My second journey was, it was about 18 months. Gotcha. That's really, really match times are improving. So if somebody were to knew that they were going to be obviously like go down the gestational carrier route would be, when is the ideal time that you would come in to like help manage that relationship? Is it before matching with, or like going through an agency and matching or is it after like, what does that look like? I would say, I would recommend that they come to me first because I also offer some education. So let's say they're just like, the doctor told me I should do surrogacy and I don't know anything about anything. Like I could give them a, like a roadmap and a lay of the land. And I'm actually working on an ebook that's going to be free um, on my website soon. But then that way they could kind of look at all of their options and understand the entire process and what's ahead of them. But if they, if they went to an agency and then applied that, I mean, or, you know, signed up for initial evaluation or consultation, that would be fine as well. Um, but I would just say to hear all of the options and what it looks like and the journey up front would be, I think, best case scenario. And that makes so much sense. I mean, I think that that's, like starting out is the hardest part, right? Pulling the trigger, making that decision, like, okay, this is the path for me. I would think having support from the very beginning would be ideal. Absolutely. And and ideally before they match. So I could give them a lot of like things to be thinking about. Like I love to coach them like on some talking points so that we can get everything in the beginning. Like you said, like the vaccinations, the lifestyle, all of that. So that way they don't fall in love with somebody and then get to the legal phase and not agree. Like that would be so heartbreaking. Like I never want that to happen. I was going to ask back when your first match after that miscarriage, how long, like, so how long had you invested in this person at that point? I mean, months, right? Yeah. Like at least I want to say four months. A long time because then they would have had none of the money was able to be recouped. That was another question. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. Right. Because if you think about it, the attorney did their job. I couldn't ask for, I couldn't ask them for their money back. Like they, they wrote wrote the agreements. The psychologist wrote and completed an evaluation. Um, The fertility clinic did evaluate, like everybody had done like there, I didn't really have much recourse. And that makes sense. Um, My husband and I are on like the private adoption journey and yeah. We've had a couple of failed matches now and you don't get that money back, but it makes, I I get it. I understand it sucks. I mean, but they call that risk money is like what the term is down here for that. Like anytime that you match, there's a level of risk money and it's usually around 10 grand where it's like, you're probably not going to get this back if this adoption fails, regardless of like when that failure happens. And that's a hard pill to swallow, especially like when you know, a lot of people who are going through adoption have been through lots of fertility treatments and spent lots of money already. And, or even just the average Joe that is wanting to adopt, like that risk money is scary. I mean, all of it's scary, but that is, especially knowing that it could happen multiple times before you ever get to, you know, bring your baby home. So yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Gosh. So yeah, I don't know. Open floor. What, what do you think? Is there anything you would like to share with our listeners? Thinking since we covered so many good things. Oh, we don't. I want to bring up a question then. This is such a sidebar off topic, but have you seen any 
of what Khloe Kardashian has said about her surrogacy experience because she's been kind of public on the show about I guess her son was born through a surrogate and yeah. she said when he was you know newly home I wish somebody had told me the truth about this it's not at all what I thought it was going to be I don't feel like this is my child I don't feel connected and I, I mean I'm sure there was a lot of exceptional circumstances in her case because we know her personal life she'd been going through a lot but I thought it was really interesting and I was actually really proud of her for having the guts absolutely because that's definitely one of those things that in today's climate if you say anything negative about that kind of experience you're gonna get trashed yeah and I was just really proud of her for saying this is not this is not what I thought it was going to be. And these are the things that I thought was different. Do you find that people have some of those same impressions that there is a kind of detachment or that they don't feel like it's happening to them? Yeah. And I wish like, it's funny. I used to watch the Kardashians back in the day. I need to like watch that season. I, I, cause I have not watched, but I would say in my personal experience, I did not experience that at all. The minute my the both of the girls were placed on my chest, it was like this guttural cry. Like I couldn't even believe that we had like made it to like the finish line and we had them. And I just felt like this incredible bond. So I got my heart breaks that that didn't happen for Chloe. Um, and I would say that I guess it's possible, but most of the people that I've talked to have not experienced that. Um, but it, like you said, she did have a lot of other things things going on. And I wonder, um, like I said, I, I had this really close relationship with my GC and a lot of my clients, that's the type of relationship they elect for also, but I wonder, I, and I'm guessing here. So I really don't know if I'm accurate. Like if, if they had more of a business relationship, because you can also select that too. Like, you know, this is a little like, you know, I, I don't want to say transactional, but a little more formal than like, I, I'm like a warm, big hug. Like I just like, it's like, co like I would say cozy. So I felt like I was in the loop and I felt included. I was at some doctor appointments and I wonder what the level of involvement was for her journey. Yeah. And I, I just imagine because of the celebrity element, there's probably also some cloaks of secrecy that, that go yes. on for a lot of people that are in that place that might be be atypical for you know compared to like your average household right but I did think it was interesting that she said it and and I think it's great like you said that she felt like she could and she you know was given a platform and I'm sure she got a lot of backlash like you're not appreciating it but I, for her that was her experience and she was able to comment on it I have a hard time with that anyways I don't like that like I have realized very quickly like in my friendships that I've made with people who have gone through IVF or have had lots of recurrent loss and have finally had their baby, that once they have their baby, it's like they're not allowed to complain ever in their whole life about that baby or the experience of being mother, a mother or how difficult it is to be a mom because you got what I you posted about that a couple months ago. So I feel the exact same way. Yeah. And I really hate that. I hate that you're not allowed to have like a regular human experience, like that you should just, yeah. the only way to be is just so thankful, which you are obviously that you finally made it to the happy every minute. Right. But that you're not allowed to have like real human emotion about the complexities of that new phase of life. Like it just, I really hate that. And I feel like that's a big thing that I've noticed in my friends and, you know, acquaintances that I've met along this path. But it's also occurring in the like 
fertile versus non-fertile group too. Totally is. Because the people, same, like the people that have had an easy fertility experience, if they say anything, then the the unfertile friend is like, well, at least you got, you know, you don't even understand. Right. You, I can't even have a baby and shame on you and blah, blah, at least you got a baby. And so I feel like it just happens in a lot of different, it's the haves and the have nots, whichever side you're on of that. But that's the whole thing. Like, mothering is hard. Having a family is hard. Not mothering is hard. Like, it's all hard. Right. So wherever you are on the spectrum, there's always going to be a level of bittersweet humanity that's happening. And so we should just, everybody should have grace across the board. Whether or not you're on this side or that side or you have a dozen kids or you have zero kids. Having a dozen kids is probably hard. (laughs) Like, maybe that happened easily for that person, but raising them is the second part of the story and people sort of forget that yeah having the baby is a (laughs) raising the family takes you on all these other journeys that you weren't expecting so yeah i mean i'm and i say that because i'm the fertile person in this infertile audience that we're in all the time and i've not had that issue yeah and so sometimes to me it's like ooh, how do i how do i navigate this i have not been in this person's shoes so, but am I not allowed to comment on the difficulties I'm having in my family because I should just be grateful and I shouldn't have any difficulties? You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it gets sticky for, I think, anybody. And I have had people say to me, like, like let's say they just don't feel well because they're pregnant and, like, they feel bad telling me. They're like, oh, but I'm, but I am grateful, but I'm grateful, but I, you know, and I'm like, you don't have to add that on. Like, I, I know, like, you, it's okay. Like, you can, you can feel shitty and be, you know and be pregnant like you're and you're pregnant like and I'm not offended like it's totally okay I think that you're in like a really good mental space though to be able to respond like that because I know so many women women that would be genuinely hurt by that you know so I think that that just you seem you are obviously very accepting of where your journey took you yeah that's true that's very impressive so how do people get in touch with you if they want to work with you or learn more about Surrogacy Simplified? They can um, go on our website. It's surrogacysimplified.com or they can message, they can follow me on Instagram. It's also Surrogacy Simplified and they can send me a, a direct message or they can email me. And my email is jessie, J-E-S-S-I-E because there's a lot of variations at surrogacysimplified.com. That's awesome. And I know we are, we haven't started planning yet, but we do have on the docket the first, you know, in 2020, early 2024 to do an event with you for all of our about surrogacy. And we're very excited about it. So by the time this is more plans for that, and obviously we will share them as well. Yes. Thank you so much. And if anyone has any questions, you know, as they listen to this, they can reach out to you guys or they can email me questions. I'm always happy to help. Awesome. And obviously like all of your contact information and links to all the places that you mentioned will be in our show notes too. So every will be, you'll, people will be able to check you out there, but thank you so much for doing this, Jesse. It's been a wonderful chat and I don't know, I'm just so glad that the world has people like you who can help guide other people on the very oftentimes scary journeys of fertility. And it's just wonderful that you exist. Well, Thank you. I'm so appreciative of you guys for having me and letting me share my story and how I can help other people. Wonderful. We'll have a wonderful afternoon. Morning. It's still morning. Oh my God, my brain.
But yes, have a great day, Jesse. We'll talk with you later. So great to talk with you both. The Protected Space podcast is hosted by Aaron Attaway and Bryant Liggett and is brought to you by The Fertility Resort. To learn more about us, head over to thefertilityresort.com and give us a follow on all social platforms at Protected Space Pod.